Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're on the phone with Project Purple alumni and ambassador, Kether Keo. Kether, how are you? Good, Dino. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for getting up bright and early. You're calling in from the West Coast. Well, I, I should have asked you, you are in the West Coast. You, you're, you're home, right? Yes, I'm okay. at home. In, in Northern California. I was going to say Southern, but I think I was getting tongue-tied. Uh, because of uh, you live up in the Sacramento area. Correct. Well, Kether, thank you for joining us on the Project Purple podcast. You and I have gotten to know each other fairly well over the last couple years. You've run a variety of races. And so for our audience listening in at home, this is the opportunity for you to kind of share who you are and how you got connected, not only with Project Purple, but also how you're connected to pancreatic cancer. My dad was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in May of 2011. Um, he had, I would say, it was a pretty typical course with the disease. Um, well, I guess one part was atypical. And, and when he was diagnosed, uh, he was told, or the, the surgeon at the time thought he could take everything out. And when I heard that, at the, and I got this news at the same time as he told me about his diagnosis, I was um, a bit skeptical. I'm a physician. Um, and in medical school, the one thing you learn, the one disease you do not want in terms of cancers um, is pancreatic cancer um, because the survival rate is incredibly low, and unfortunately it's still the case. But they thought based on initial scans that they would be able to um, take out the cancer. Um, and so the original diagnosis was around mid-May. He had um, he went to surgery um I believe it was the 1st of June of 2011, and they opened him up, and they closed him up. Um, once they got in, it was pretty clear that it had spread um, through um, what we call the retroperitoneal area, so kind of all along his back, um, and some things, you know, which you can't necessarily tell on a scan, but was obvious once you uh, opened up surgically. So all they did was more um, put in some stents to relieve. He was having a lot of jaundice at the time. Um, put in some stents to relieve some of um, that, uh, but otherwise closed him up. Um, and the process of that surgery, though, was um, pretty traumatic, I would say, for his body. I was actually uh, with my family at a prearranged trip in D.C. at the time when I remember, you know, getting a call from my stepmom, um, leaving the restaurant I was in and going outside and hearing that, you know, they had closed him up, that he wasn't. Um, they weren't able to do much with the surgery. Um, and then I was home uh, a couple of days later. He was in the ICU um, having 10 different lines in him, all these different drips basically to kind of keep him um, alive. And at that point in time, it looked like, you know, from a medical standpoint, when I saw him and the amount of interventions that were going on, that he probably wouldn't make it through that hospitalization. And he did eventually make it through that hospitalization, but he was, uh, it was about six weeks long, and he'd just gone in, you know, for the surgery whatever that morning, um, but ended up staying for six weeks, and most of that time in the ICU, um, being very, very ill, just needing a lot of help uh, just to, to continue to survive. And at this point in time, there was nothing really in the way of any interventions um, related to the pancreatic cancer or anything like that. Everything was just to keep his heart going. Um, and so over those weeks, um, he was very, very ill, um, just in and out of the hospital a lot, visiting him, 
And then um, he did eventually go home, and so that would have been kind of mid-July. Um, and I would say over the next month, um, he was, you know, he'd go home for a couple of days, go back to the hospital, kind of doing a back and forth, a lot just treating um, incidental things that were coming up out of, um, so probably, you know, recovering from the surgery and that procedure. And if this infection or this thing would happen, he'd be hospitalized for a couple of days and then go back home. Um, but really was spending majority, you know, probably 95% of the time in the hospital. Um, he, I would say the turning point in terms of his decision making, um, was probably early August. Um, he was getting hospitalized again and, uh, different things they wanted to do in terms of um, brewing infections. And at that point in time, he was sort of done with the level of intensity, but just being in the hospital, level of excessive interventions. Um, and um, so he declined some, you know, treatments that they were offering and went home. So it was early August. Um, he was put in hospice. And medically, he was, you know, really rather you know, poor shape, had lost a lot of weight, um, and wasn't doing very well. Um, but he opted for kind of more minimal interventions, um, started having a lot of trouble even, you know, eating, maintaining any sort of nutrition. Um, and he spent his last five weeks at home um, getting hospice care, um, kind of, I would say, just gradually declining I would say the, the last time I saw him um, was the evening before he passed away. And I could tell most that week he just was not looking um, very good. I would say the last couple of days sort of declined um, even more dramatically um, and um, ended up passing away. It was a Friday night. Now, hold on, let's see if I get my time frame correct. Um, yeah, it was a Friday night going into Saturday morning, and uh, when he passed away, I it slept for a couple hours, um, and then I went up there to kind of um, help when they were um, coming to um, get his body, so I was there, and he was already passed away at that point in time. Um, that was a Saturday morning, um, and that was September, of, uh, September 10th of 2011, so it had been, well, around five months from his diagnosis. So he didn't really go through any, like, traditional treatment, it sounds like, in terms of because of the no. surgery, right? Like, I mean, so there was just... no, yeah, there was no radiation chemo or anything like that um, because originally they thought they could operate. <clears throat> so that was the plan was sort of to operate, and then that surgery just, he, he tanked really badly um, with that surgery and went downhill um, pretty quickly. Like I said, I mean, the fact that he... The surgery was on a Friday, I think. Um, I was home and saw him that Sunday evening. Um, and seeing what he looked like, it just, yeah, I mean, I I didn't think he was going to make it, like, to the next day. I mean, that's how bad he looked after the surgery and how quickly he had sort of decompensated. Um, he just didn't, you know, didn't tolerate that at all. And so um, the fact that he got out of that first hospitalization is... Um, Rather surprising, again, again, given kind of the level of medical interventions they were doing to make that happen. Um, but I think, and that I think was very trying for him, like, you know, just 
being in the hospital, I mean, a large part of the time he was, you know, not terribly cognizant of what was going on. Um, but fortunately, him getting out of that hospitalization allowed, I think, some closure in some ways. Like, I think we we had more conversations during the subsequent hospitalizations, more conversations um, when he was, you know, at home the final five weeks um, that were helpful in terms of closure and his ability to say goodbye. He was definitely kind of more expressive, more emotional during um, that final month than, um, than he might have otherwise been. He's, you know, stoic, reserved New Englander sort so do you feel, and I know I've had this conversation with other people, not that they're, you know, having closure, having the ability to say the things you want to say and maybe do some things, not like take some on the Disney world, but do maybe some small things that mean a lot to the people in that situation is better than having someone tragically die and never having the ability to have quote unquote closure. And I don't know, you know, the term closure is 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 very I think broad based because I don't think there is closure in all of this right but I, I think there's a, a better way I don't know if there's a better way but I guess there's there is some closure in the fact that hey you were able to say and I know for me like I was able to say all the things I wanted to say to my dad did it make it right was it fair absolutely not uh, but it's a much different experience than getting a phone call from my mom or from a loved one saying, hey, so-and-so has passed away, and you just never got to say those things that I was able to say to my dad. Yeah, I do I do appreciate the time that was there for those conversations that happened, um, which is obviously very different than kind of an, an abrupt um, end. And, I, and do you think that in some ways facilitates that closure? I think the challenge was more kind of, the state he was in and how he physically was at that time was, you know, it wasn't who my dad was. Um, and I remember, you know, at one point in time during those last few weeks, like he had no appetite, he didn't want to eat. So we basically had a big argument. I'm like, if you're, if you're done, then fine, you're done and don't eat. But if you're not done, you need to eat um, so eventually later that night. Um, but it's, you know, sort of like, you know, this is, if you decide you're done fighting, then that's okay. And if, and if not, then, then you need to do yeah, you what need you to can do, do some to things. kind of, yeah. you know, prolong things. Yeah. Now, your professional career, I just want to talk to that, and then I want to come back to this, uh, what you just said. So you, professionally, you are? I'm a child psychiatrist. I see adults as well, but I'm a psychiatrist. Okay. So then how was that? from how how hard was that probably for you from a from having a background as a psychologist and and dealing with adults and children to be in that moment um because i i would imagine that's somewhat of a challenge um i would say professionally um i and i would say sort of my dad's experience or my experience with him has has changed the way I view patients in the same situation. So professionally, um, I've always been, like, I'm very good about separating kind of what's going on with my patients with my own emotions. I think you sort of have to do it. Um, you know, when when you're working with children or you're working with people who are in extreme amounts of distress or people who have had trauma or things like that, um, where in order to help facilitate their process through that, or help them 
emotionally. You have to be neutral in some ways um, because if you're if you're puddling, that's not going to be helpful for them. Um, so there's kind of like a therapeutic neutrality, if you want to call it that, um, where I can help somebody work through something or talk about something with other people, which is very difficult to most people, um, you know, probably those are not the conversations they're having in everyday life. Um, and I would say like going through the process of, cause I've, I've had some other losses and other grief, but, um, nothing to this extent, mm-hmm. you know, nothing hit quite this close. Um, and I think going through that, like it made me, I think better understand some of those losses or, or that grief that, that my patients have. Um, I think it definitely made me a better physician. Um, and unfortunately, that's not kind of the way you, you want it to happen. But um, but I think it's it made me a better physician. It's made me a better person. Um, but you know, in the process, it's it's rather difficult. Why do you think we don't have those conversations? Because those are important conversations to have, though, right? Like every day, almost like with those people yeah, that mean the most. Um, but <laughs> I mean, I would say. It, it depends on the person, on the people. Um, my dad was always, you know, really reserved. And so having a conversation about with kind of more emotional depth or meaning or, I mean, the things he said, I, I knew already anyway. Yeah. Um, but I, I hope based on my career choices and whatnot, <laughs> I'm more emotionally intuitive than, than some people might be. Um, but you know, you have different ways of expressing things, and, and my dad was always reserved, and I think growing up, most of the time where you'd see him sort of the glimpses of things that were more emotional or difficult for him to talk about would be um, when he would talk about his experiences in Vietnam, which was very rare that he ever talked about that, um, and and I would say some of those conversations we had at the end sort of, you know, they were reminiscent of those conversations that we had had, which you would get little glimpses of you know, every couple of years sometimes. So it wouldn't be that terribly often because um, it was, you know, one of those things he, very traumatic for him that he went through and he sort of, you know, put it away and compartmentalized it and that was the way he could manage those things that had happened. But I think the other the other corollary is, is kind of how my dad managed that, but, but how we kind of manage that. Like we, we don't have conversations as a, culture or society about death, about dying, about being realistic about it. So when when somebody's told they have pancreatic cancer and, and the surgeon says, well, I could take it out on my mind and the other end of the phone, I'm hearing this from my dad and I'm thinking, oh, it's pancreatic cancer. No, I don't, I don't think that's right. Um, but you, you have hope instilled that there's surgery and something, I mean, I sort of, I think, maintained skepticism, but my dad had hope. Um, instilled in him and that, and obviously that was not the outcome. Um, but we, I think as medical professionals, um, we fail our patients often in terms of um, we're not taught in medical school and training and residencies how to have enough conversations about, about death, about dying, about grieving, um, about prognosis. Um, in a meaningful way um, so that people can prepare. And there's obviously a lot of denial when somebody, you know, is terminally ill. Um, And so 
as physicians, as medical professions, we, like, those conversations don't happen because sometimes we don't initiate them, but then there's a culture which doesn't talk about it. Um, I mean, in my profession, I, I don't have people acutely ill in that way, um, but I have people where I'm having to talk about dying every day because people are chronically suicidal, but it's a different sort of conversation. Um, obviously, there's, there's a, um, a, a component to suicide that's um, if somebody has to act and do something versus a disease. Um, that's making that choice for you, perhaps. Um, but, but we don't tend to have conversations, very good conversations, I think, in the medical profession about um, people who are terminally ill and what to expect and being realistic. Like, for me, I think, um, and my husband and I have talked about this a lot because he's also a physician, um, and he's in family practice, so he actually, you know, deals with some of this more often, clearly, than I do. Um, but the conversation about he tries to be realistic with people about their prognosis and what's going on and what to expect because it's important to have the conversations that you need to have to take care of things that you need to if you are terminal and if you only have, you know, a short amount of time left. So do you think if we had these types of conversations more often or more accepting of our feelings possibly, I guess would probably be another term because it is a very emotional conversation, that we yeah. would be better prepared for what comes down or or maybe from a clinic and I don't know maybe you would know from a clinical standpoint people that tend to have a, a more of a mental awareness of what is happening have had those conversations possibly I doubt there's been a clinical study on that but it's just kind of fascinating just listening to hear what you just said and I agree with you because I I think I look back at my own personal experience and I I accepted a lot of things at the time. Not that I am better than anyone else or that this was easy. By no means am I saying that. But I think just I was guided at the time actually. Someone had recommended a book. I read the book. I think I was lost and that's why I read the book. And it just enlightened me into this whole process of death and dying and accepting that and, you know, the reality of it. Not that we ever, that I ever gave up hope, but also there was this stark reality of it. And, you know, I've said many times, like, death is inevitable. No one lives forever. And I think that's something that uh, we don't talk about because it's a negative thing. But if we accept that, I don't know if that changes mindset like going in and we've interviewed so many survivors and fighters and people that are still battling and I have to say Kether there's one thing that you know people there's one guy that comes to my mind right off the top of my head Bill DeFord who we've had on this podcast and he said he's had a great life he's like in his mid 50s and he's like Dino I've had a great life but I want more you know, so almost accepting the reality of it, right? Like he he's got the fight for his life, but he just wants more. You know, and I, and I think that's so powerful. You know, for so for our listeners at home, I think you just said some really important stuff about having those conversations or having that reality or being maybe consciously aware of that is maybe a better term, possibly. Yeah, I mean, and, and agreed. We we don't have enough of those conversations. I think sort of knowing what to expect from a realistic standpoint. I think you can have that while you can have the hope at the same time. But I think what happens is sometimes people hold on to the hope and don't have the realistic expectations 
next to that, and therefore the conversations that maybe need to happen aren't happening, or the preparations that need to happen aren't happening. And then I think that 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 delays that process of grief. Um, and I mean, I think the the grief process is protracted and prolonged anyway. But I think it, it definitely is more difficult if you haven't had some of those conversations that would facilitate closure. Couldn't agree with you more. Uh, powerful stuff there. So thank you for sharing that. So I want to shift gears here. You're a runner and you're, I know you're on the men right now, right? You've, you sustained an injury and you're, you're coming back. I saw, the, I think this morning or last night, you ran a 5K finally. It's been a while. But oh, I'm up to, I'm half a half marathon. Oh, okay, half marathon. Perfect. So, <laughs> it was just, it was a 5K in the middle of a tempo run. Okay, all right, all right. So we're good, we're good. Uh, I'm back. You're climbing back quickly. But when did you start running? Um, I started running in July of 2007. So were you a runner like in high school, college? Like were you active? No, no not at all. <laughs> I was, I was like, never no. an athlete in any way, shape, or form. I was running. In, all I remember as a kid, I was running in fourth grade, and I could beat the boys in fourth grade, but I never really ran after that. Yeah, far removed from anything athletic until I was 34. That makes sense, yeah. So you, you started running at 34, you said? Yeah. Now you just age yourself. So for everyone at home listening, we now know the age of Kether. And so... Yeah, uh, I, I'm 46. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. As you get older, as you get older, you keep going into a new age So you, but you've been quite accomplished since you started running. So when you started to run, like, how did that start? Like, why did you start running at, at 34? Which is not necessarily midlife, but uh, I mean, later in life and not necessarily like you didn't have a background of, you know, running track or cross country as a, as a young person or as a young adult, even. I mean, 34 is still a young adult, but a little bit later on that, that spectrum. So what got you into it? started running with some people we knew and uh you know i'd go out and spectate uh he was probably running some 5ks at the time um and so to rewind um i you know had gained some weight i would say uh you know like kind of like the freshman 15 in college and then a freshman 15 when i went to medical school and then probably a little bit more when i started residency um so and then I had kids when I was uh, 28 and 29, um, and so, you know, you accumulate weight over the years, um, and then in 2005, um, one of my husband's patients was a trainer and kept encouraging him to kind of get fit and, and lose weight, and because my husband was overweight too, um, and he'd actually been, you know, overweight as a kid a little longer than I had. And so my husband started working with the trainer, and he started that in January of 2005. So I agreed that I would do his meal prep um, and help him with the meals. And I was like, no, I'm not going to exercise, though, because I don't exercise. <laughs> um, and uh, so I was doing my husband's meal prep for about, you know, six-month period of time. I actually lost 20 pounds during that period of time. And then in July of 2005, I started going to, um, you know, working with this trainer, and we eventually would do the, the, the group classes. Um, and so I started already becoming fit for, you know, maybe a couple of years before I started running. Um, and so it was, you know, weights and cardio 
course or accommodation types of things. So by that point in time, by the time it started running, I actually had already kind of lost, um, you know, like 20 pounds, modest amount of weight and, and was decently, you know, fit, had some muscles and whatnot. Um, and then so my husband started running, I think, you know, spring of 2007, if I recall correctly. And at that time, I'd go out and spectate some races and conversations with um, a friend at the time. And then also with my brother-in-law, I had a couple people make comments that I couldn't run a 5K. Um, and and I would say I tend to be a fairly competitive person. Um, and telling me I can't do something is probably one of the better ways to get me to do something. And so I decided I need to show these people that I could run a 5K. So I signed up for a 5K mid-August of 2007, and um, I was uh, early July. I think we, we were up in, in Tahoe um, for, uh, actually, I was visiting my dad. He had a cabin up there at the time. Um, we were up in Tahoe for 4th of July, and so the first my first run was a mile and a half along the shores of Lake Tahoe. Um, and, yeah, that's when the running started. And kind of worked up, basically, I guess, a couch to 5K plan over the next six weeks and um, completed my first 5K uh, in August of that year. And I think it was probably just over 30 minutes. Um, so I, I was able to apparently run a 5K. And then what got you to that next? Because you, you've accomplished quite a bit in such a short period of time. I mean, if you think about it, from running your first... 5k in August of 2007 and I would say you know a little bit over 10 years uh, to last year 2018 I mean you, you've you've run Boston a bunch of times I mean last year you came into New York with us you ran Western States last year you qualified for Western States so what was kind of was there a moment at some point in that running that you just like it clicked and you just became I wouldn't say Addicted is a hard word uh, and probably a poor term to use, but you just kind of passionate. passionate. Yeah, I've been accused of being addicted to running, um, but passionate, I think, is a better explanation. And I would say, like, there is a certain component to that. It's you know, it's reinforcing uh, both mentally, it's physically reinforcing in terms of endorphins. Um, so yes, I get my highs from running instead of other choices, um, but but they derive a lot of joy from it. Um, so I ran, um, I ran my first marathon in October of 2009, so a little bit over, maybe like two and a half years after I started running. And the way that came about, um, I wanted an excuse to go to Disneyland, um, <laughs> and there was a half marathon in Disneyland and like Labor Day weekend of 2009, and, um, so... I signed up for that, and I think that would have been kind of late uh, 2008 was when you registered for it. And um, in order to get, they have corrals at different races, or so basically you have to submit a time, and then you're you're seated or put in a corral in a race based on a set time from a prior race. Um, and at Disneyland, I figured, you know, there's people who are just doing it for fun, not necessarily for time, but I'm kind of a time person. Um, and so I needed, as it were, a qualifying time for Disneyland half marathon um, in order to kind of, you know, be in a corral or seating where I wouldn't be behind people taking pictures all day long. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but not what my purpose was in running. Um, 
And so uh, we needed, I think, oh, we needed to be a 10-miler or a longer time for the mm-hmm. half marathon. And at that point in time, it was very hard to find 10-milers. Um, they're definitely more common now. Um, so I ran my first, I moved from 5K to 10K January of 2010. And then I actually ran my first half marathon that February so I could get the time for Disneyland. Um, finished that, I think, about two hours, three minutes, two hours, four minutes. Um, couldn't walk the day afterwards, of course. Um, <laughs> and then as I'm training, you know, starting thinking about training for this half marathon, you know, in September and already I'd done a half marathon, I find out about Nike Women's Marathon, which is in San Francisco. It doesn't exist anymore. Um, but at the time, um, it existed, and, and you finish, you cross the finish line, and you're given a Tiffany necklace as your medal instead of, you know, a traditional medal. And I was like, hmm, that sounds kind of cool. And it was a lottery to get into the race. I'm like, well, if I get into the lottery, then I guess I'll run my first marathon. That was March of 2009, and... I have decent lottery luck other than Western states. Um, and uh, so I got in the lottery and got a spot in the marathon, which was that October. And so I started marathon training. And so in the end, that um, Disneyland half marathon, which I ran about six weeks before my first marathon, um, ended up being you know another training towards a marathon. And then um, ran my first marathon in October of 2009. And mile 16 of that race, um, I'm, you know, what am I thinking? Why am I doing this? I never want to run a marathon again. Um, super painful. Um, I I think shortly after that, I saw my family, my husband and my daughters. My dad was actually out there, my stepmom, um, as I hit the Great Highway, um, which is kind of by the ocean in San Francisco. Um, that was mile 19. I saw them. I'm like, I'm never doing one of these again. Um, and then ended up finishing a little bit faster than Oprah's. Marathon time, which is all important. <laughs> That's the bar um, to beat, right? Like for anyone who's listening, if you're a first time marathon runner, you just want to either be uh, Oprah Winfrey or Pamela Anderson. I think is like the bar. Now, I'm not trying to make a sexist comment, but I think like those are yeah, no, two I, celebrities yeah. that I mean, Oprah is like the celebrity, right? That everyone always brings up when they talk right. about celebrities running marathons and all these. I, it actually just came up the other day of celebrities you don't know who ran a marathon, and like number one was yeah. Oprah Winfrey. Yeah, so she, I think, finished hers 4.30 yep. something. Um, I finished 4.29.56. Um, and San Francisco is pretty hilly, so there was yeah. a decent amount of hills um, in that. So and my original goal for the race was around 4.15, and reality set in, like I said, somewhere around mile 16, that that probably wasn't going to happen. Um, and, um, and I think things, like running-wise, kind of ramped up pretty quickly from there, like most people you either are in the middle of your first marathon or you finish and you're never going to do it again and the next day you're signing up for a race. Um, <laughs> Isn't that crazy how that happens? Like, I, you know, I, I want to pause here for a second. I love how you put, like, you got motivated because of the bling and like I know that's happened to many people where they're like oh this this you know the bling that the race is offered um or you know the the VIP stuff or you know whatever the the stuff that they're dangling there not to mention you have to finish 26 miles yeah. <laughs> which at mile 16 I, is it really worth I'm it? no longer motivated by metal yeah go. yeah exactly um so from there, it kind of ramped up pretty quickly. I ran my second marathon in L.A. that spring, and then um, my husband, I taste him to run his first marathon um, that 
summer at San Francisco, um, and I would say over the course of, I think it was about 16 months, I ran five marathons. Wow. Uh, and ramped up pretty quickly in time, um, went from 4.30, 4.12, um, and then the pacing gig was a different story, but then um, then my next marathon, my, so it would be my fourth, but really my you know, third, if you don't count the pacing one, um, I broke four hours. Uh, ran a 358 at CIM in 2010. Um, and then uh, and then I ran Surf City down in Southern California, I think the following February. Um, took a couple more minutes off. Um, and so then we're in 2011. Um, and then in May of 2011, um, you know, obviously I get the information about my father, um, at the time, I was I, I registered for Houston, which was the following January. Um, my goal for Houston was to try to get a Boston qualifying time. Um, I sort of looked at it and what I needed at, at that point in time. I think I needed a 350, and I had like a 355. So I figured, you know, with the training, I could get it done. Obviously, things got a little bit derailed um, that summer um, with my dad being sick. Um, but my official training for Houston um, was scheduled to start that September, so actually right around the same time he passed away. And I think that actually helped in a lot of ways in terms of my processing and healing with that. Um, and actually during that training, I ramped up probably a little bit too quickly, um, ended up uh, getting a stress fracture. Oh. Um, so that was the fall of 2011. Houston was uh, the January of 2012. Um, and... Um, so then like the thing that was helping with my healing, some in terms of, uh, my dad, I didn't have that outlet or I had to re reshift it to aqua jogging, which is not quite the same. Um, I did end up running, um, Houston that year was about nine weeks after, um, my, uh, stress fracture diagnosis. Um, just took it easy. Didn't have any expectations, but sort of replicated my personal best time at the time. Um, took six weeks off after Houston, did aqua jogging only to completely heal my stress fracture, um, had a concerted training plan, registered for a race that June, um, had basically a 12-week training plan, uh, ran that race in June, wasn't sure of what to expect with it. Five weeks out from the race, I had a 147, I think, half marathon, which, pre which predicted kind of around 347, 348, and, um, the Boston qualifying times had changed during this time frame, so I suddenly needed a 345 to qualify instead of a 350. And um, so I ran this race in uh, Ohio Ocean down mm -hmm. in Ventura County. It's now called Mountain Speech. It changed its name the following year. Um, and so it's known kind of as a BQ factory, if you will, but this is the second year the race existed. Pretty small at that time, um, probably, you know, a few hundred people. Um during that race, um, I remember running it, and I was sort of unsure of how I would do or not do because I, I knew based on my half marathon a few weeks prior, I was kind of right at that cusp, and if my train was continuing to ramp up, I had a chance to get the time I needed um, but wasn't really sure. Um, and I just had a really good race. Um, I did cry a lot during the race. It was still, you know, um, I sort of... That was one race where I, I felt my dad was with me, and sometimes that happens for me during races. Um, and so I remember 
probably somewhere between mile 13 and 16, kind of, you know, in the middle of the, the muddle of a marathon. Um, and I, I don't know, I felt his presence. I felt him there. Probably maybe something on my running playlist came up. Um, I occasionally have, you know, Willie Nelson's song on there um, to trigger a little bit. Um, and there's a, there's a Pearl Jam song um, that Willie Nelson sings, uh, Just Breathe. And it's really, um, and I think the original intention of the song is, is about losing somebody and about loss. And um, that's a hard song for me to ever listen to without um, weeping and crying and getting emotional. And obviously when you're physically kind of testing yourself in a marathon, in an ultra race, um, when you get to kind of that physical, you're kind of pushing yourself and all you have, your emotions get certainly quite a bit more raw. Um, and so plenty of times running, um, and you know, when I'm training on trails and things like that, uh, but then also during kind of the intensity of a race, I tend to get more emotional at times. And so definitely had many of those moments during that race where I was more emotional thinking about my dad, uh, but definitely felt his presence too. Um, and I had a, a great race in terms of, and I knew like 20 miles and I'm like, I'm, I'm qualified for Boston. Um, and my dad was there with me in my mind, um, in my heart. And, um, I ended up running a 341 that day. Wow. Um, so, so broke my personal best by 14 minutes, um, coming off of a stress fracture. And, um, and that, that would lead me to run my first Boston, which was, uh, in 2013. That's so, uh, I, I get chills just hearing you tell that story. So, when you crossed the finish line, you knew, like, what was that like that first time? I mean, that's got to be, I mean, and that's really, I mean, if you think about it, that's really like three years, you know, post uh, running your first marathon ever. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, it was my seventh marathon. And yeah, no, it was, I mean, I was already kind of super emotional during the race, overwhelmed, and it was just joy. Um, you know, when I ran the race, back of my calf, number four in JK, John Kehoe, my dad's initials. Um, so I was writing for him, um, and he was with me. And so, yeah, just kind of um, the joy of that accomplishment, um, the sadness of him being with me but not being with me. Um, yeah, and, yeah, it was definitely overwhelming. Um but in, in many positive ways, too, you know, there was a lot of grief, I think, through the course of that, but, but obviously joy, too. Well, thanks for sharing that with us, because that's got to be, would you say, like, one of the highlights of your running career, that first BQ? Yeah, I mean, the race itself, from the standpoint of, you know, not 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 the most scenic I've ever run <laughs> and, or anything, but, but in terms of emotionally, certainly, um, and, and I, I've had many, many more emotional races um, since then. Um, but yeah, in terms of the starting point, certainly. So now you run. You, so now you qualify for Boston. You get to Boston yep. in 2013, uh, which is right. the infamous, uh, you know, year of the Boston bombing and. Yeah. 
everything that goes down. So let's talk about that briefly because that was uh, my second year doing Boston. I was up there in 2012, got a number seven days before, didn't train. And then I was like, okay, I'm coming back next year because I want to do this and I want to train and I want to do it right. So did you complete 
Um, uh, and medical came over to me, um, asked if I needed to go to the medical tent. And I was like, um, no, this is my first boss, and I'm not going to end it in the medical tent. <laughs> no. So um, a really great decision that day um, in retrospect. Um, so a volunteer helped me, got me some Gatorade, and I continued walking on. Um, so I wasn't sitting at the curb, and I didn't go to medical, and it was it was just more of a, a matter of pride. Like, I was super dizzy. I was super out of it. And I have plenty of races like that, uh, but I was just like, this is not the way I want to finish my first Boston. And um, so I managed to get some fluid and nutrition in me, um, and then I kept moving along, got my medal, um, and at that time, they had gear check bags, you know, as you keep going through the yep. finish line. So I got um, my gear check bag, put on some clothing. Um, the hotel we were staying at, uh, the Revere was maybe like a quarter of a mile from the finish line. So I got some clothing on, exited at Arlington, went to my hotel, which was, you know, block and change down the, the way. Um, and got to my hotel room, uh, of course, took a selfie. I was very bad at taking selfies at the time, but um, had a bad selfie um, and uh, took my selfie with my medal um, in the hotel room. The selfie is timestamped at 2.50 p.m. Um, I start taking a shower, you know, getting cleaned up. Um, my family comes, so my, my, uh, my two daughters and my husband were there. Uh, they came to the hotel room. We were all back at the hotel room. Um, then I get a call from my cousin um, asking if we're all right. And we're like, what are you talking about? Um, and so we turn on the TV and see kind of, you know, everything that had happened. The world kind of was falling apart. Um, nobody kind of knew what was going on at the time. Um, there had been explosions down at the finish line. Um, you know, one and then another a couple of minutes later, and that was at 2.50. Um, and um, so my husband and daughters, when they were, um, they they decided to walk back from mile 25 um, to the hotel. So it's probably, you know, maybe a mile, mile and a half um, from where we were staying. And as they were walking by, um, I think they were trying to grab me some food. So I think they were walking on Stewart, which is, um, two blocks south of the finish line, and there there was a noise heard. They heard kind of like a thud, you know, type of noise. It's hard to describe it, but once you've heard it, you you know exactly what it is the rest of your life, unfortunately. Um, and uh, my daughter, the younger one, asked what it was. She was, I'm trying to think of how old she would have been. Um, she was 10, and my older daughter was 12. So my younger daughter, Sophie, was 10, asked what that noise was. And my husband said, oh, it's, you know, probably like, you know, a truck, you know, when they're, they're doing kind of that backup, that exhaust, probably noise from a truck. Um, so they keep walking back to the hotel room. Obviously, it was the first bomb going off is what they heard at the time. Um, and uh, I think the world paused. My world paused when I got the call from my cousin when we turned on the, the TV Um you know, and after that, it was like, I've read my first Boston. It was absolutely everything that I thought it would be. Everybody on course was just so many people on course. And 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 especially kind of that last mile um, all the way from Kenmore to the finish. And you take that right on Hereford and that left on Boylston and turning on to Boylston. 
just the noise, the energy, the intensity of it. Um, was absolutely everything that you would want, everything that people say Boston is. Um, and, you know, I'd run not as fast as I wanted to, but I still had a personal best. And so I, I had had, like, the, the Boston experience. My family was out there. And suddenly, um, talk about closure, um, it was gone. You know, obviously, other people like you out there running, unsure of what had happened to them, where they were. Um, people like Matter over the course of the weekend, do they finish, do they not finish? Um, my family was safe, um, and we were all supposed to go to dinner that night. Um, the world was basically under lockdown at that point in time, so my family made their way to our hotel room. They couldn't get back to, my cousin lived in the training camp, they couldn't get back there. The, uh, the green line on the team was all closed after the bombing, so they all came back to my hotel room. We had, um, you know, the hotel was great. Um, the Revere did an excellent job. We were hunkered down in the hotel room. You'd hear detonations is what it was. We weren't sure if they were bombings or not, but basically, you know, we were hearing it for the rest of the night um, through the next morning. Um, my family uh, stayed, you know, for a few hours. We had room service for nine in the room. And, you know, just on the news, people checking in on social media. So I would say, you know, as bad of a rap as social media can be and all the challenges with that, um, that was one way to let people know how you're doing. And we just put out a quick statement that we were safe and we were okay. And um, kind of a whirlwind, really, at that point in time. So and, your first Boston um, went from, you know, this joy and adulation of, you know, having your best horror. time ever to like, oh my God, family, what's going on? And like you said, I think the world did stop for, you know, as long as it was. I think I think it was like 48 hours that Boston was like under lockdown until they actually, yeah. fell, you know, it's yeah. like kind of crazy. To some degree. I mean, I think that the original um, in being there as well, I remember uh, I was stopped on the course at like mile 25, uh, or actually I was right at the turn from from uh, taking that right-hand turn onto Hereford, uh, or uh, is it Stewart, and then taking that left on the Boylston. So um, that's where I got stopped, and my my journey like getting back, it was just so sur- – I, I think anyone who's experienced that, who was there that day, it's almost like an out-of-body experience, right? Like did that really happen? Is this really going down? And you look back, hindsight, of course, is twenty twenty, but it's just a really, really crazy day for everyone. Yeah, and I, re- and I remember when I was running it, you know, because um, the prior marathon I'd run was the one I'd be cued at. I didn't run any marathons in between. Um, and I remember, you know, when I ran that BQ race, I my dad was with me, and I'm running Boston, and mile 16, there's the Providence sign, so my dad's yeah. in Rhode Island, so the Providence sign, I start weeping, you know, I'm like, you know, thinking about my dad, I'm like, why is he not here? I don't feel his presence, and I didn't feel his presence at all on the course, and I was angry with him for not feeling his presence like I had during my BQ race, and afterwards, I absolutely knew why I didn't feel his presence, he was busy taking care of the rest of the family, you know, yeah. making sure, because the family passed from, you know, 25 through 26, they were two blocks away when it happened. Um, and, and my dad was, you know, he was my husband, my daughter's guardian angel that day and took care of them and made sure they were okay. And I'm perfectly okay that he was not with me during that race for that reason. 
special. Thanks for sharing that. So you BQ that day. So oh. you now come back 14, 15, yeah. 16, 17. Yep. And 18. And in that process, you find us in, I believe we started with with you in 2014, if I'm not mistaken. Was that the first year or no. was it 15? Um, so I, I ran with Project Purple for Boston in 17. 17. Um, so okay. what happened, um, obviously Boston has a lot of meaning for me. Um, and after 13, I sort of felt the need to continue to go back to Boston. And certainly as long as I was fast enough to do that. Um, that was my one caveat that I, I wanted to be fast enough to go back. I would keep trying. Um, Boston 2016 um, was a warm year. It was in the 70s. Yeah. Yeah. And I was well trained for it. Um, but the heat got to me and I, I BQ'd. But um, I BQ'd by 96 seconds. I remember oh, running down Boylston in 2016 and I was like, I made the mistake of looking at my watch and knowing I was super, super close to BQing. And I knew at that point, I was like, I might not make it back for 17 because Boston in the past few years has been known to have cutoffs anywhere from a minute to um, up to five minutes, nearly five minutes. Um, and so running down Boylston, I was like, I may not be back next year. And I sort of absolutely took, took it all in um, and uh, finished that race. And, uh, you it probably wouldn't be enough. So when uh, in September you, you register, uh, you submit your time, and the fastest people are accepted. So you can qualify for Boston, um, but even if you qualify, it's not a guarantee that you'll get in because, like I said, the recent years there have been yeah. cutoffs. So the cutoff for the 2017 Boston, which came out uh, late September of 2016, was, I think, two minutes and nine seconds. Um, so I was 33 seconds too slow and missed the cutoff. Um, and to me, I was like, well, okay, maybe this is fine. I just let the race go. Um, and then I decided, no, let me see what my options are. So I started looking into charity options for the Boston. And that's how um, I found Project Purple. And I think I had reached out to Project Purple to you um, right before Chicago that year. I was running Chicago and you guys were in Chicago. Yeah. Um, and I think we ended up talking on the phone or, or maybe by email after Chicago. Uh, but I remember seeing you on course and waving to you on course on one of the bridges. That's right. Um, <laughs> That's and so then, funny. Um, and I applied to run with you guys. And you called me um, the day before Thanksgiving, 2016. Yeah. And I'm forever grateful for your call and for offering me a spot on the 2017 uh, Boston Marathon team for Project Purple. And I think that's sort of how, so again, my dad's watching out for me and, 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 and connecting me with you guys. Um, so 2017 Boston, I ran for my dad and I ran for Project Purple. Um, and the, the experience I think I had through fundraising from, you know, that Thanksgiving through uh, Boston in April of 2017, it wasn't about the training. It wasn't about the running. Um, obviously, that's part of who I am and, and one of the things I derive great joy from, but that was a whole different side. And that was, you know, maybe part of that closure, maybe part of the healing for my dad, but the stories and the people I think I connected to through their stories of loss of grief. And, you know, some people obviously through also pancreatic cancer, but other people with other types of loss and other types of kind of 
abrupt, devastating cancers in their family. Um, I think it brought me a lot closer to different people in my life. Um, and through the process, um, you know, I'd be running like a tune-up race, and and I met people who would come up to me and thank you for running and tell me their stories. And I've had that experience over the past, you know, it's been um, two and a half years, I guess, um, over the past couple of years um, of people coming up to me, people I've met through Project Purple directly, but just then people I've met through through running with, you know, wearing the singlet for Project Purple. Um, and in 17 was another warm year. And I was like, well, I got my Boston qualifying time for 18 at Chicago, so I could just run Boston for my dad, run it for fun. Um, and so I was, you know, thinking I might be a bit overly emotional since I was running for my dad, but it was definitely, I think, a celebration for my dad. Um, and I sort of took the day and enjoyed the race since it was super warm. Um, had a beer going up Heartbreak Hill for him. Finished the race and put on my Willie Nelson song. Um, I don't run Boston with music uh, these days. <laughs> and um, But I had to, I put my phone up to my ear as I was getting out of the the corrals getting back to my family um, after the finish and, you know, just started crying thinking about my dad. And then, uh, yeah, so that was how I met you that year and connected with, with Project Purple. And the rest is history, as they say, in some ways. So in 2018, you go back to Boston, which is, you know, talking about the heat in 17. We were an official charity in, uh, in 18, but you ran via our Pioneer program. And, you know, 17, hot, 18, awful, cold, rat. I, yep. you know, is the year of, of weather, you know, as I call it. And I think the one thing is just that iconic picture and I remember you and I talking and you turning the corner there on Boylston and just the adulation and the 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 face that you have on that picture is just awesome. But you're completely soaked. Like and, and Yeah, no, I mean I was at that point in time that was my thirtieth marathon. I'd probably read twenty some odd ultra marathons at fifty K or longer. And the conditions of that race and I'd run Boston fifteen, which was, you know, pouring rain, cold raw as they call it, uh, 25 mile an hour headwinds and 18 is, was so much worse. And I'm somebody who doesn't tolerate heat well and that cold and the wind and the rain. I mean, I was drenched before I even started the race and I was freezing. And anybody who knows me knows when I run, I wear shorts and a tank top. If it's cold, I add arm sleeves and maybe gloves. Um, but I'm known for wearing nothing, you know, next to nothing because I just overheat so much during races and, Boston 18 was a run, one race I wish I'd worn an extra layer. Um, and I didn't, but because of it, it made much better race photos. And yeah. I wasn't wearing a garbage bag like some other people on course. Um, and I turned that corner, though, and that's the best corner in all of racing anywhere. And it was so ridiculous because as I'm going down Boylston, it just starts downpouring like another deluge going on. It hadn't been raining enough, obviously. I'm sort of downpouring to myself. And you can see in that picture, there's people behind me. We're all sort of doing the same laugh. Because uh, it's a laugh of, just give it to me, bring bring me what you have. I love this race, and and I'll take it. And you know, it's running for my dad again, and um, and and that facial expression in that photo, which is my best race photo of all time, um, was it what Boston is to me. It's what my dad is to me. It's what that race is to me. Um, and you know, give me what you have, and I'll take it because no place else in the world would I enjoy it the way I do. Awesome. So. 
18 was a big year. You did Boston and then you got into Western States. And I know that that happens way in advance. And so what was the kind of motivation to do Western States? And for those listeners at home, let's talk a little bit first about Western States. It's an ultra marathon. It's a 24 hour, like there's a 24 hour. No, there's a, what's the time? 30, 30 30 30 hour time cap. The race is uh, how many miles, first of all? 100 miles. 100 mile so race. I, 100 miles, yeah. And like your elevation miles. drop gain is like ridiculous, right? It's like you... Yeah, you, I mean, you, you drop about 21,000 feet. You gain about eight, 18,000 feet. You're basically running from Tahoe to Auburn, which is like a foothill community, you know, 45 minutes north of Sacramento, or half hour north of Sacramento, um, 45 minutes north of where I live. And so I got into ultra running after that first BQ. I needed a new challenge. So um, I went to the track and I did a couple of track races, like short distance, 400 meter to 1500 meter. And that was really painful and I didn't care for that. Um, so I decided to try my, my luck at ultra running and trail races. So I did my first trail race in between my BQ and my first Boston. I ran a 50K October of 2012. And I would say once you've done a 50K, um, then your goal should eventually clearly be to run a hundred miler. Um, so Western States, I knew about Western States um, because it's a super famous race that happens to occur 45 minutes from my house. Um, and Western States is the Boston of ultra running is the way most people compare it. Um, it's sort of like, um, it is the first ultra, it's the first hundred miler um, since uh early 1970s um and it was originally a horse race uh or the course was a horse race one year this guy gordy um his horse wasn't working the horse was lame so he decided he would run it instead and back then they had it so the 24-hour time comes from that was the limit for the horse race so that first year he had to finish it he basically was running the horse race on foot finished under 24 hours and so western states has a 24-hour time where you get a, a silver buckle and for us mortals there's a 30-hour time limit where you get um a a bronze buckle um that buckle is beautiful nonetheless um and so uh it became like the quest to, to qualify for boston was qualifying and running western states so western states though unlike boston where you get a qualifying time and yes you need to make a secondary cutoff but there's you know 27,000 people who run Boston, Western States, there's 369 people who run it. So you can qualify, but that doesn't guarantee you entry. And so it's, so in each year that you qualify and don't get in, it's a lottery process. Um, your name goes back in the lottery and you get extra tickets in the lottery and it's exponential. So I had to qualify for five years um, with exponential lotteries. And so in December of 20. 17. Um, in the lottery, they were drawing 261 names that year. The 250th name drawn was mine. Um, so after five years of qualifying and five years of doing qualifying races, and the qualifying races for it, uh, anywhere between 50 miles and now they're all either 100 cases, 62 miles or 100 miles. Um, and you have to do that each year. Um, so it took a long time to qualify. And I mean, my name was drawn. Um, for the Western States 2018. Um, so, and you, um, you, and let me back up here. Living yeah. in that area, I remember training your training. Like you were going there before you actually ran the race. 
like you were training on the course. So I wouldn't say you had a distinct advantage, not that this was... Oh, it's, a, it's, it's an advantage to train on the <laughs> well, course before I, you run the race. Yeah, I, I think, though, like you weren't going into Western States trying to win the race, though, right? Correct? You wanted oh, to, no, 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 no. I'm so, not competitive So in that the way. advantage no. here was just knowing the terrain. And I remember you and I talking about this, and I remember seeing pictures and for our listeners at home, if you haven't been to that part of the country, I think it's hard to fathom this. And you know, you talk about twenty-one thousand feet, and you know, in going down, eighteen thousand feet going up. I mean, these are mountains, folks. So you are going up, and, it, in, and, it's, and you're, you're going through its trails. It's mostly single track. There are some fire roads, which are the roads that, that you know trucks force trucks yeah. can go on. But it's mostly single track. So your your path is a foot wide, and yeah. And it's rocks, mud, water, yeah. And I know when you were training, though, that year, there was like, what, like four feet of snow or five feet of snow. I mean, you you couldn't get into some of the areas. I remember you and I talking because the snow was just so deep. Well, Um, I had tried to run, um, because I was very familiar with the final 70 miles of the course the race puts on training runs each Memorial Day weekend, and I'd been doing those since 2013. Um, so I was very familiar with it. I've paced the race before. I knew the back part of the course. I had never run anything of the first 30 miles of the course. So um, I went up maybe, I think, about four weeks before the race. I went up to Tahoe, to Squaw Valley, to try to run the beginning of the race to get a sense of it or at least do the first 10 miles. So I was going to you know, do 10 miles of the course and then you know, come back. Um, and um, I got to the top of the escarpment, it was what they call it, so 8,600 feet at the top of Squaw Valley, she's basically at the top of the ski slope, because it is a ski slope, um, and um, went over the hill to, to head towards Auburn, and got about a half a mile in, I could not find the trail, there was so much snow, I, I barely made it, I didn't make it to the top of the hill on the correct route either, because there was so much snow, um, so basically that was a wash, and I, I saw the first um, the, the first 30 miles of the course on race day, four weeks later. And actually, during the race, it was fine. Um, a lot had melted during um, those weeks. But, yeah, the, trying to train those first 30 miles um, wasn't going to happen because of the snow. And I remember that, the, I, and I'm not trying to make fun of this, but the end of the race when you finished was on a track, right? Like you finish on a, on a yes. is it a high school yes. track? So I think that's like the, the irony of all this is like, all right, we're going to send you into the woods. You're going to do a hundred miles, but we're going to finish on a track. And the mud that you had on your legs and everything was just like, I, I mean, for being out there, I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. And I think, you know, our audience listening, if they want to learn more, I know the Western States has a great website, social media, just go out there and check it out. It's just, just really, really amazing. And and that's an amazing accomplishment. Now I want to, I want to stay here for a second. You finished a race and you finished under the time cap. Not everyone who gets into the race finishes the race, correct? Correct. Yeah. So there were, uh, 369 starters, 299 finishers, I think. So is that actually for Western states is a really good finish rate. And for most 100-milers, that's a really good finish rate. I think it was 81%, which is one of the highest finish rates for Western states ever. Um, usually 100-milers, you know, depending on the race, they vary. But, you know, finish rates might be in the 60s. Um, and, and it was a warm year. It was the ninth warmest year of the race in 40-some-odd years. Um, so day during the race, you're going through these canyons, basically in and out of these canyons of mountains, 
and you're exposed and you know it's above 100 degrees i mean it's it's known for being a heat race and um fortunately i had spent a lot of time in the sauna in the weeks before the race and that saved me so i didn't have heat issues during the race that's crazy uh, to hear you say you, you you spent time in a sauna to prepare for a race. It's just nuts, but I love it. I love it. So you, you finish Western States, and Western States takes place in what time of year? It's uh, like right around. Um, it's it's the the last weekend in June. June, yes, and then we give you an opportunity to come to New York to run the New York Marathon in 2018. So, so you get Boston in the spring. You get Western states at the beginning of the summer, and then New York City. And I know you were a little apprehensive because your recovery from Western states. You still, you said, I remember you and I when we were talking about training and stuff like that. You said you weren't really recovered uh, from Western states coming into New York. Yeah, I was by the time I got to New York, but I um, so you know this quest to continue to qualify for Boston. Yeah. Um, it's causing problems in my life. Um, so at, at Boston, I did qualify in that storm, but I only qualified by 18 seconds. So I knew it wasn't getting me into Boston for this year for 2019. So I, you know, I did what I could. Um, I ran a marathon eight weeks after Western States up in outside of Seattle, and that was a bad idea. My body was clearly not recovered from that. Um, so had actually my... Um, worst personal worst marathon time there um i was yeah anyway I, I ended up running new york almost an hour faster um but i wasn't recovered so i think when when i'd spoken to you in september about running new york i was like yeah we'll see uh, but but i was very eager and excited for the opportunity um obviously new york is one of those bucket list races like boston for most people um and hard to get into um and so uh between so i basically had like I think about 10 weeks to train for New York um, and things were progressing well. I had a good training cycle, but it was just, I, when I was younger, in my younger running life, I don't think I'm that old yet, but in my younger running life, I definitely recovered a lot better. I could do, you know, I, and I, and I did this spring. I mean, I did Boston. I did Big Sur two weeks later. I did Miwok, which was a hundred K race six days after Big Sur. So these are kind of typical things that I do in terms of back-to-back races. But I think I found over the past two years, probably it's been a lot harder for me to recover. And, and Western States definitely um, took its toll on me. It's the hardest race I've ever done, even though I've, I've done another 100-miler um, or finished another 100-miler and, and done parts of other 100-milers. Um, but it definitely took its toll on me, and, and I, it's just harder for me to recover. Um, but I had a good training cycle, um, and over the course of training for New York, um, also, you know, I did a, another fundraising campaign, and again, just sort of connecting with people, and, you know, during the time that this has been going on with um, Project Purple, I've made friends through pancreatic cancer, like people I met on race courses, I've had friends who I've had have family affected by it, so, you know, the motivation in terms of continuing to fundraise has been you know, really salient just in terms of day-to-day experiences with, with people who I've met. Um, and I do um, wine for a cause is, is kind of one of the fundraising. You love, we love, we love seeing the wine up in the, the northern part of the, the California. I know you've, you've been very involved in that, and that's been a great, great way to kind of generate some interest and find, you know, things that are you're passionate about or that you're very right. highly involved in. So it's been awesome to see that grow. Yeah, and that my dad was, my, I, I have my love of wine 
uh, for my dad. Um, so, so again, another way that my dad sort of ties in. So I do like a blind wine tasting, and, and it's a great way to kind of raise money for, for Project Purple. Um, and so Boston, uh, New York, um, and again, New York, it was like walking to my first Boston. Eh, is it going to live up to the hype? You know, that sort of thing. Um, and the weekend was fantastic. Um, I helped out at the booth at the expo and got to meet a lot of the Project Purple runners. Um, and then obviously there was, you know, a pre-race dinner and again, got to meet uh, with people there and actually, um, was able to participate in the opening ceremony on Friday night before the race in Central Park. And it, you know, a lot of it is, are the different countries that are represented at the New York Marathon, but there was also a contingent for the charities and, um, was able to meet, um, other Project Purple runners there, including a survivor, um, which is, wow. Um, I think meeting the survivors has been, um, both both um, at the parade, but then also at the, the dinner and uh, the after party. That has been really, really um, incredibly moving, I think, for me, uh, seeing, seeing people have, have, you know, been through it and survived and are thriving now. Um, and the race itself, um, wow. Um, if I weren't such a huge fan of Boston, New York would probably be my favorite marathon. Um it's fantastic from start to finish. Um, I uh, I just enjoyed it. It was just it was a beautiful day. It was a little warm for my taste, but but beautiful for spectators. And Boston has ridiculous amount of spectators, and New York almost put them to shame. Um, I hate to say that; it sounds sacrilegious, but but <laughs> you know, the, but the scale of New York is you know it's obviously New York. Um, but I would go through sections in Brooklyn and. Um, the crowd was so loud, and I was, you know, I had this great New York City playlist on. I could not hear my music at all, and I was like, "Wow, if I had like a noise or you know hypersensitivity, it'd be really difficult because it was just so like it was thunderous." Um, and talk about motivating, though. Um, and my goal for New York was to qualify for Boston 2020. Um, so I had a set pace I needed to do, and I was just ticking off the miles, taking it all in. Um, and, and Project Purple was out there. You were out there, um, I think mile 12? I think about yep. mile 12 in Brooklyn. Yep, in Brooklyn, um, yeah. Yeah, and, and my husband went out and met me, met you there, and so he was out there. And then um, and then as I'm coming, you come off. So the only time New York is quiet is on the different bridges because the, the, um, the spectators, pedestrians, are not allowed on the bridges. So it's like, get this moment quiet. And then you're back on the streets, and New York is loud. So, you know, coming down um, First Avenue, and Project Purple was there again. I think you guys were at 106th Street, um, and uh, so I think Chelsea was out there um, with the Project Purple uh, banner. And, and New York is really tough. It's a hard race. Um, I think it was my 33rd marathon. So I've done a few, um, and it was a hard race. There's lots of hills. Um, and every bridge is an up and a down, but there's more hills towards the back half. Um, and it's, it's because there's streets that you can count down or count up. That's rather painful. Um, cause you, you get into Manhattan at what 59th street and you have to go all the way up to the Bronx, which is 140th street. Um, and those blocks may be short, but not when there's, you know, that many of them. Um, and so I, and as I, you know, was running through the Bronx, it was, you know, I had about six miles left. And I was sort of 
really starting to get hot. But no, just stay, stay on top, stay on chart of what you need to do. Coming down Smith Avenue, and that is a, a gradual uphill, which is not really what you want, um, you know, 20 plus miles into the race. Saw Project Purple again. I think you guys were at 92nd. Um, Marcy was out there. And right before yep. we go into um, Central Park, into Central Park, and my husband uh, was back out there again. Um, and go into Central Park, it's rollers, and I'm fading, but at you know, the 23-mile mark, which is around where Project Purple was, I'm like, okay, I just have 5K left. I look at the clock, I'm like, okay, I got I got a half hour to do this. You can do this, um, because my qualifying time for Boston is 3.50. Um, I keep getting older, and they keep tightening the time, so my times have stayed in the same five-minute range uh, the whole time I've been working on this. Um, but I'm like, no, you can just, just stay under a 10-minute pace per mile, and you can do it. Um, and uh, kept going, eventually, you know, coming down the bottom of Central Park, and then we have to go back up. So, again, we're down to, you know, 60th, 59th, and then go back up. Um, and we the finish is, like, near 72nd, I think. Or, yeah. Um, and uh, I'm clicking away. I, I see the 26-mile marker. I know, I know I've gotten my time, and I know I've gotten it handily. Um, I cross that finish line. It's fantastic. Um, and again, I, I have my usual overcome with emotions at the end of the race, start weeping. Um, and, um, you know, during the race, I'd had different people, you know, thanking me for running for, for project purple for pancreatic cancer. And every race I've had the experience where somebody comes to me, um, you know, talking about family members and whatnot. So I think that kind of always enhances those race experiences. Um, it gives a new meaning to my running that I really didn't have before 17. Um, and so I ended up running a 347.20 that day. Um, fastest race I've had in a couple of years. Um, the ultras sort of take it out of you a bit. And so I'll be back to Boston in 2020. So I won't be, I mean, I'll be there spectating this year and I'm running the 5K, but actually I'm spectating my cousin um, who's running her first uh, marathon in a, in a few weeks. Awesome. And I know we, you and I talked about this. Uh, New York was somewhat special too, because that's where your dad had done his schooling, correct? Correct. Yeah. So um, my dad uh, went, he was uh, born and raised in Rhode Island and he went to Manhattan College um, for his undergraduate degree. And then he served in Vietnam. And after Vietnam, um, he came back and um, attended Fordham um, for, uh, so so from Manhattan up to the Bronx, just like in the race, um, he attended Fordham uh, for his MBA. And then um, my dad was actually um, living with my mom and brother. My brother was born in New York. Um, they were living in New York. Um, and my dad was actually in New York City when I was born because they were in the process of moving to Rhode Island at the time. Um, and so, yeah, so um, when I had gone to New York, um, I think it was 2010. Yeah, that would make sense. It was 2010. Um, I was in New York for a conference and um, ran across the marathon finish line then because it was like a week before the race, got inspired. Um, but that year I had picked up for him, I got a necklace that was a New York City subway token, like one of the old tokens um, with the Y on it. Yeah. I had bought a necklace for myself and I had bought my dad um, the, the cufflinks that go with that. And so I'd given it to him that Christmas, um, so Christmas of 2010, um, so right, before, you know, several months before he got sick. And um, so my 
my dad is actually buried with those cufflinks. So mm. he has uh, the New York cufflinks with him. And, and I had, you know, that necklace with me, that race. I don't run with the necklace, but, but you know, before and after. Um, and so, yeah, it seemed fitting that, and I knew eventually I would have had to run New York for my dad uh, because that was one of his homes. That's so special. Thanks for sharing. I mean, that's, that's really cool. And now you're coming off a small injury that kind of sidelined you for a little while, even though in the beginning of the call we talked about you bouncing back and you're, you're running more. Sure. But you, you were sidelined for a little bit after New York, right? You had an injury that you had to kind of pay attention to? Yeah. I uh, After New York, I ran uh, CIM, which is the California International Marathon, about four weeks after that. Um, and then a week, yeah, or two weeks, I guess two weeks after CIM, um, I was running with a friend on trails because I was like, let me go back to the trails. Um, after marathons, that's kind of what I like to do. Because um, I had some trail races that I was originally scheduled to run this spring. Um, and uh, so I was, I was actually running along uh, parts of the Western States course. I was actually at mile 95 of the Western States course um, up in Auburn um, area. And um, I stepped on a rock funny. Um, and I did a stutter step, um, and my left ankle, um, I was like, ouch, um, I didn't fall. I stutter stepped to kept myself upright, and it's important that I didn't fall with this injury. But with the injury where I didn't fall, um, I ended up uh, completely tearing two ligaments on the outside of my left ankle and partially tearing, um, like, a, a larger ligament um, on the right side of my, on the inside of my ankle. Um so I, I, it's, you know, like a super severe, so an ankle sprain would be, you know, there's like partial, like a strain, mm-hmm. there's partial tears, and then there's complete tears, and I managed the complete tears with a few bonuses. Um, so I was, yeah, it's, um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, it sounds it's, awful. It's the longest, I, <laughs> longest that I was off running. It sounds awful, Kether. Yeah, but, you know... I, my thought at the time was, you know, I am somebody who loves racing and I race a lot. And when the injury happened mid-December, um, my next race on the calendar was the beginning of March. I never have a schedule like that. So I was like, well, this was pretty good timing if it had to happen. Um, I was, And I was amazingly grateful that it happened this year and not last year. When I, because last yeah. year that it happened, it would have been devastating getting into Western States and in the ramp up for Western States. So... I'm amazingly grateful that I had the year I had in 2018, that I got through all the races I got in 2018. And actually, in reality, my last injury was that stress fracture back in, you know, 2011, um, you know, late 2011, early 2012. For the amount of running I do, the amount of trail running I do, um, I've been amazingly blessed in terms of not being injured, not having, you know, anything that's kept me off running for that length of time, you know, in that long of time I've been in. So I look at it as be grateful that the timing was good. If there's a way to have good timing for it. And, and I've actually, and I would say my recovery process with this was a lot better than I expected because I had pretty bad pain for, you know, the first five and a half weeks of it. Um, like just hard to walk around and bear weight on it. Um, you know, when I was in a boot and all of that. Um, and for me to be, you know, I got out of the boot end of January, and then I had a brace that I wore for the next, you know, five or six weeks um, to be back, and I'm up to running 
10 miles at a stretch, we'll run a full 13 on Sunday. Um, I've been doing a lot of power walking and stuff too um, to compensate for, for running miles that I'm not doing. But to be back um, and to be healthy again, and it's been a really quick process given the injury that I had. Um, so I, 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 I don't sniff at those sorts of things. And, you know, I, I try to approach things with an attitude of gratitude. Um, I was just so happy when I was able to start walking again because not even not being able to be outside was really hard with that injury. But, but it, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it was a really, really short period of time. That's a great attitude to have. I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the whole story and the narrative of just, I think, gratitude, you just said it, has just been awesome. So last question for you. If there's some of our listeners out there and uh, you, you live in Northern California – you're one of our ambassadors. You're 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 been at many races, sporting the Project Purple colors, which we love. And I know there's some other things we're doing here in 2019 that will lead into 2020 that you'll be involved in. Um, if there's a way that someone can connect with you, maybe to learn about Western states, um, if they thinking about like getting and going down that road or getting into Western states, how can they connect with you, Kather? What's the best um, way? Well, my probably the easiest way would be uh, through my alter ego, which is Rhino. Um, so um, it's a long story, but anyway, um, it has to do with wine. And, yeah. Okay. We'll just leave it at that. Um, and uh, so my Instagram handle is Rhino Runs and Runs. And I have a Facebook page with the same name, Rhino Runs and Runs. And so you can certainly send me a message through either of those. I also have a blog, which um, I'm a little bit behind on race reports. The last one up is Western States, and I really still need to write one for New York since it was such a great experience. But anyway, my blog is um, Rhino Runs and Runs at blogspot.com, I think. But if you if you Google Rhino Runs and Runs and blog, it'll it'll pull up. I should really know my oh, and and it's linked it's linked on my Instagram page. I'm like it's linked somewhere, and then on my Strava page too. But Strava, I'm Kevin Kehoe. Um, so it's K-E-H-E-H-E-R-K-E-H-O-E. Awesome. And you can follow me on Strava too to see what running I'm doing. Awesome, awesome. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to share your story and your passion with us. It's been awesome to have you on the podcast. And I look forward to having you back out there on the race scene and seeing – I will say this. I don't think I've ever seen a picture – from one of your races without a smile on it. So either you you are smiling the whole time or you're really good at pointing out uh, photographers. You know where they are, so you throw the smile on them. Absolutely. I have a very good eye for knowing where photographers are at, and I'm not smiling all the time, but (laughs) it's a decent job of it. Um, And obviously the photos that I post are are usually the the better ones. But no, over the years, I... um, You know, you're you're out there running, and I enjoy running, so you might as well express that you run and actually if you smile it actually makes it faster so there's a tip that is true we have a sign smile you'll go faster i i I truly believe in that so well thank you for being so much yeah thank you so much dino for having me on actually um jim and i will be at chicago we'll probably do our own uh fundraising we have our own bits but we will be at chicago this year i can't wait so uh that folks is a wrap on another episode of the project purple podcast (laughs) 